0: Welcome to the Design Exec Club podcast, featuring global design executives discussing how to solve and accelerate to a better future with the design lens. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder and chair of the Driven by Design Awards. Over the last 18 months, I've had the privilege to interview a wide range of design leaders. We've re-edited and tweaked the audio and republish these for you to learn be inspired and understand how others are getting to the future faster and working to create a better future and we're here in hong kong at ibm and we're talking about design in the boardroom with four amazing panelists here tonight we have michael tam the chief creative catalyst from ibm ix please round of applause audience for michael Next is Bob Neville, the global retail creative director for New Balance. Please, round of applause for Bob. <laughs> Following that is Hamaxi Irani, head of UX and design, Seekers uh, Asia. And Hamaxi, I believe you're looking for for talent. Is that right?
1: Yes, we're always looking for talent Fantastic. all across Asia.
0: Anybody who wants to work for Hamaxi, applaud, please. <laughs> And finally on our panel here tonight is Andrew Mead, the Chief Architect of the MTR Corporation. Please, round of applause for Andrew. So audience, we're gonna have a conversation which are based on a whole range of questions here for our panelists, which have to do with how is design working as they manage up in their organisation? Are they being asked to go manage down, that the board is being smart enough to ask them to go do things which actually comes from a design language? Where are they up to in the sophistication of the culture inside the organisation? What have they done to grow that culture inside the organisation? Where have they had wins? What sort of tools have they put into the boardroom? And also, what has been the greatest success that they've had? Changing an organisation's economic outcomes by using design, and it may not be their current organisation. So let's get into our panelists here. Bob, so why don't you help us understand? Because New Balance is a very interesting beast because you've got a very, very smart shareholder, or it's a single shareholder, I believe, and uh, and that he's understanding how design is able to go affect the company from every day, isn't
2: he? Yeah, sure. Just just to give a bit of, a bit of background to New Balance. Um, New Balance actually consists of a number of brands. Um, It encompasses properties like, you know, Liverpool Football Club. Um, So, there's there's a number of quite high profile properties that we work on and on, on and with. Um, But the interesting situation we're in is we're family owned. Jim Davis and his wife Anne that own the the business, um, he did some of the most significant sportswear and footwear design innovations in the history of sportswear. The first shoe to sell for more than 50 US dollars, the first shoe to sell for more than 100 US dollars. Choose um, the first million-dollar deal for an NBA athlete was was by New Balance and Jim Davis. Um, we all know the Nike uh, Air Jordan Jumpman logo. What a lot of people don't know is that when that picture was taken, he didn't actually have a Nike contract. Uh, so he was actually wearing New Balance shoes in that logo. Um, so, so I'm working for a guy, which I absolutely love, um, that, that has really innovated and is the sportswear industry. So you know, design at board level, It's very much there, but at the same time, you need to be part of a team, and that's finance, that's HR, there's there's all these other disciplines. So, I wouldn't want to be doing finance, and I wouldn't want finance to be doing
0: design. So, Bob, to help the rest of the board members, what sorts of tools have you been able to build in a new balance to help them to understand the design language and also the design outcomes that you're creating for the economics of the organisation?
2: So th- there's a number of things that we that we've done, and we use some very basic um, technology and skills, and we use some sort of more complicated um, digital solutions. But but ultimately, we use a number of KPIs. You know, are we selling stuff? But but also, you know, what I'm also interested in is what didn't we sell? You know, how are the consumers interacting with our products in a space? Um, so one of the things that we you know, we do, we've got computer programs that can predict what the human eye or the human being is gonna look at and how they're gonna interact with a product or a space. Um, But at the same time, just outside Shanghai, we've got a pretty large environment. Um, it's, it's It's a massive, massive space where we can build stuff, whatever we want to build, we've got metalwork facilities, all sorts of things there. And we can walk people in and we can stand them in an environment and we can talk about light levels, colors of light, all sorts of human emotions connected with a product in that space or the space itself. So we use some extreme sort of modern technology and at the same time, some very basic um, putting a human being in a space and see how they react or how that product uh, fits.
0: So what I like about that set of answers there is that you're part of the 360 degree management of, of the company. It isn't the design has tried to be in its own enclave. You've worked out how to go and support finance to work out how to support inventory management. And that seems to be a great integrated strategy because I've seen some organisations that have struggled because they've tried to create a separate culture rather than working out how to go support the overall enterprise. I, I would say that Something that's really, really important is that ultimately all of us
2: here in some shape or form are designing something for human beings, whether that's something that goes on your foot or on your back, or it's something a human being is going to move through. So it's, you know, the, the customer and who you're designing for is, is really, really crucial. You know, that's, that's one thing. Um, so ultimately for us as a brand, you know, if we don't have products that sell, the rest of it doesn't matter. But at the same time, I need the finance department. I need the sales department. I need the sales associates in a store. We're all co-dependent on the success of each other to make something work. So I, th- I think there's a mistake that could be made at, at any point where any one uh, discipline within a, a multinational organization thinks it's more important than another. Um, so design is important, but I can't do what I, you know, I do without the support of all these other disciplines. So. Um, I, I, I often make the comment that everybody's prepared to give a view and opinion about something that I and my team design. Um, at the same time, I always turn around and sort of say, when it comes to finance and spreadsheets, you know, we don't sit there and say, well, I've got a slightly different view on that. It's like, well, the finance guys do the finance bits and no one questions it. But if I turn around and say something should be green... You get every man and his dog giving a view and opinion. Um, And that's just something that's, I don't know if it's just me, but it's happened over my 25-year career on a regular basis.
0: So, but we're going to, in a moment, cross over to Hamaxi, who will be talking around digital products that that are at SEEK. And in the digital realm, we always talk about tech debt. But there's also experience debt, and there's also design debt that's out there, things that you know that aren't necessarily right, but you need to get around to sort them out. I remember we had a chat about one of the stores that I went past here in Hong Kong and uh, you said, yep, it's on the program to go and actually be upgraded. And that to me is an example of the design debt or the experience debt that's inside the organisation. It's interesting when you start using the same sorts of language that's used in digital products to think about a physical store. You're acknowledging that it may not be the current series, you're acknowledging that it may need to be upgraded, but that doesn't mean you can get around to it immediately, and digital products are no different there. So, it's going to be interesting going and seeing where some of those correlations are, because I think for yourself and also for Andrew, there's obviously some journey debt that's out there inside the MTR doesn't mean that you can get to immediately but you have to work out how to prioritise it. So Hamaxi, help us out here a little bit with with the idea of UX, UI, Seek Asia and then pushing design up into the organization so that they understand how you're making the company even more amazing and magnificent.
1: Wow, that's that's a
0: lot to cover.
1: Um,
0: so for for those who don't know,
1: Seek is essentially it's an Australian parent company. It's an employment two-sided employment marketplace, and um, the parent company is on in Australia where the brand is Seek. We also have an aggregator brand called Jora. Uh, through acquisition, uh, there are now brands represented in uh, Mexico, Brazil all of Southeast Asia under the brands Jobstreet and JobsDB, which might be the ones you're more familiar with, and across China as well, and I think six or seven different cities under the brand Xiaoping. So it's a a very complex business model. Uh, We were talking about scale before. There's the complexities of multiple brands, multiple platforms, multiple sort of countries, cultures, compliance, all of those things that we're dealing with. And uh, when you add all of that up, including the progression of acquisition and combining platforms and so on, when you talked about tech debt, I did a little, uh, um, a little kind of like sigh because that's just a natural part of what is going to occur.
0: And and one of the things that we that we want to see achieve when a merger and acquisition process has taken place is that we want to find process efficiencies that are in there. So by being able to go and work out how do you take a, an experience that's working in one of those products and work out how to migrate that across into their mother platform and get the, get the efficiencies that are happening there, that's where some of the opportunity is for SEEK. But that's also a multi-year project of working out how do you go and rather than give interface shock to people in the system, that you actually roll it out progressively so that they don't actually think they're on a different platform. They, Whichever one of those brands it is, that they've got a good understanding that they're still with the same organisation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something we have to tread very carefully with, including the brand and what we do with the brand. So the actual experience, the product, going down to functionality level, you um, tone of voice, even the brand, all of those things, we have to be very careful in terms of how we actually amalgamate them, and then how how do we roll it out step by step, because as much as we have to be sensible and careful about how we adopt that, we also have to be smart in terms of the technology um, and the efficiency of the technology. At the same time, you can't afford to go too slowly, because once you start to change something, you're starting to create expectations around the experience that people expect to see. Any change signals that something different is coming. So we can't be too slow in that either. You have to adapt quite fast.
0: I want to just share with you a little story from uh, eBay. eBay had a a disaster, a rebranding digital uh, disaster, happen in 2012, 2013. Twitter was relatively new and people had just learned how to be outraged. And uh, eBay went and changed their logo colour outrage and there was you've got to change it back and they had to roll the the brand change back but what the audience didn't know was for the next year every day the color of the logo was just changing a little bit so over 12 months that they actually got to where they wanted to get to so sometimes the idea of trying to roll out a change is that we can shock people, and I think we've seen, you know, if you get caught with uh, people being irate in you, sometimes it's best to acquiesce, but overall the strategy was they knew that they needed to have a different brand. They knew they had to roll it out incrementally, and in the case of a digital product, they were able to do that daily and nobody knew that the frog was in the water and, and it was boiling away. So, you know, there's some of, the, some of the differences, I'd say, between a physical product like a New Balance, where changing your colours every day would mean that you'd have stock uh, that actually had different colouring on boxes. But definitely with digital products, we know how to go roll these things out incrementally and make those new experiences that are there. Andrew I want to have a bit of a chat about MTR then because MTR it's a fantastic service always seems to run reliably whenever I've taken it but um, you've had a a, run, a heap of changes that have taken place inside the network and I suppose many people wouldn't see those experience changes that are happening because they're relatively incremental aren't they?
3: Yeah, um, so MTR this year celebrating its fortieth year. Um, Come on, have
0: our round of applause for a (laughs) forty-year-old. Hey, hey!
3: Uh, I'm only six with MTR, but I've been I've been designing metro stations for for a lot more than that. And it's interesting that when it started out, um, it was a pretty basic. Um, It just moved people around in terms of the stations. And and we consider our our heritage stations now, the mosaic tiles, the colors, the calligraphy. Um, And of course, over the years, customer expectations have risen. Um, And one of the interesting things I always think um, is, is you compare with both Singapore and Hong Kong, metros that were designed in the 1980s were both designed without toilets in them and without lifts in them. And it wasn't as if people didn't need to pee uh, back then. And it wasn't as if lifts hadn't been invented and old people hadn't been invented. But they had this idea that it was mass transit and that we weren't going to cater for those
0: segments of society. Oh, so it was mass transit for people who weren't aged and didn't need to pee. Yeah. Okay. That kind of sounds like a pretty good strategy there. 40 years ago. Forty we did, we've got
3: a bit more enlightened since then.
0: <laughs> so, so something that interests me about about a train network is, you have to design for everybody, all socioeconomic groups, all linguistic groups, all cognitive capacity groups, all mobility groups. That is some of the most inclusive design that you can go do. And I think for everybody, it's worthwhile to understand how does somebody like the MTR go change the in-station experience, the journey experience, the ticketing experience, the information experience. I, um, I was uh, coming out of a station today and there was a hoarding up to, uh, for some work that was being done on one of the escalators. And as I came up the escalator that I was on, it was telling me this story in a whole range of different chapters there. I think I, I'll, I'll try and publish the photos if they're not too blurry that I took there, or maybe Andrew's got photos he can supply. But it was a really interesting communication. It was a little bites that helped me go understand what was happening here. And by the end of the escalator ride, I felt a little bit more intelligent and I was a little bit more patient with what was happening. And I think that's a really important process, working out how to tell stories and to make sure that people feel engaged and that they're informed. And that must be very challenging for you because you have so many programs of work that are going on and working out how to go and keep that communication going.
3: Well, it's interesting you you talk about that one because that is one of our relatively new programs. um, you know the, the railway is, to say, 40 years old, and the escalator replacement program. Our escalators go down for maintenance on a monthly basis, just for a simple check. But when we need to rebuild them, they're like two months or so. And so we decided a communication plan based around simple facts: how long they've been moving, how fast they move, how many parts are being replaced, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to give people a, a, a bit of the human side of, of the metro. Um, People just expect it to work 24 7, be there without fail, and which 99.9% of the time we always do. But behind the scenes, there is a lot of work that goes on, most of it outside of operation hours. But when we're maintaining an escalator and we have to move people around in different ways in the station, communication is a real key. And if you can communicate them on that moment of walking on an escalator, then that's a great way of actually connecting with them in that small, small moment that you get to pause in otherwise what is a very busy
0: environment. And so that's kind of taken uh, some of the uh, Olympic diving experience. Uh, Who's who's watched the Olympics every four years and not understood a thing about diving and then half an hour later you're an expert, whether it was a big splash or not? I know I'm one of those people. And every four years I remember, that's a a three-and-a-half-degree twist pike. But I don't know that at the beginning. I know that because I'm gently introduced to these very complex concepts and they're done in a graceful way that allows me to become the expert through a simple communication process. So that's fantastic that you're working out how to communicate so that there's a a compact between the public, they need reliable escalators, safe escalators, and you need to be able to go do the work that you're doing and you need to have that accommodation. So that no doubt will be improving people's satisfaction on the network. I certainly hope so. Michael, let's go have a little chat here about IBM, IX, you you get to go see a whole range of different clients and you get to go work on, on projects that are very varied and many. So how often do you get to go see the board or are you seeing managers who have made a promise to the board or have been told to do something by the board, and then you have to go affect it for them? Or do you get to actually have that interface with, with board members? Well, we get to see both um,
4: some projects. Luckily enough, we get to meet the, um, uh, the key owner. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we go through multiple of uh, meetings to gauge and guess what the, uh, the final decision-maker's uh, real intention is. So um, I guess the answer is both, and, and we, you can never really get a guarantee uh, you know the kind of outcome you get. So it's all about asking the right questions, I guess.
0: I'm an old creative director from advertising, and so I, I used to get to go and meet boards all the time. And there was basically a, a job that we had to do, which was that we had to get them confident that they would allow us to mess around inside their company But the things we proposed to them was never what was going to be executed. It was always that we had to just work out how to go get their confidence rather than actually get their collaboration. And I think that's changed now where we're seeing people who want to collaborate and they want to understand what's happening. So those tools that you need to be able to report back, there has to be a lot more transparency. And yesterday I was at an animation studio where I saw possibly the most interesting annual report that I've ever seen. I've seen the... MTR's annual report, which is actually in an animated video. I can't tell you the figures, but they looked pretty impressive. But what was interesting there was it was being used as a communication tool because who needs to go read the, the accountant's report when what you want to hear is how many journeys, how much more confidence in the network, how, many, how are we performing, and what's the story that's going on with our community? And that was so easily defined in this animated video that was using information graphics, it was engaging, and it made it interesting. And when I went and asked the animation studio that were doing it, have they done this before? They'd done one for the Hong Kong Airport Authority. And what was interesting for the Airport Authority was very difficult for them to get dimensionality behind the sustainability initiatives that they had. And when they used the video they were able to get a lot more dimensionality behind the idea of waste initiatives and reduction. And all of a sudden, something was just a number in a spreadsheet was coming to life. And so I think that visual storytelling is one of those interesting ways to go and actually manage up to tell people about the success and the project outcomes that are there. Andrew, when you see the annual report, I know you're going to be absolutely enthralled. This is really great guy in a high-vis vest. I think he might've been modeled on you. Okay, I look forward to it, Yeah, you. I'm not sure when it's out, but uh, it might be like the Avengers movie where people line up around the corner to go see the MTR report. It is a cracker. You really should take a look at it. So, Bob, I'm interested from you, whether it's both New Balance or whether it was in a different stage in your life... What's been one of the most breakthrough initiatives that you've been able to go do that has helped to accelerate the economic outcomes for an organisation? Is there one that comes to mind to you where you go, I'll tell you what, we weren't confident, but when we went and did it, it was amazing how communicated the results that we got. Is there something that jumps out?
2: Yeah, I would say with the New Balance brand, you know, one of the challenges we had, um, I've been working in Asia and China since the late 80s, early 90s. Um, opened up some of the first sports retail in China in the early 90s, which is really exciting. Um, But my job I see as a designer, as a a storyteller, as a brand storyteller, and bringing that that story to life and informing people about that brand and what it stands for. And one of the challenges we had uh, with the New Balance brand is that in China, we were considered uh, a second-tier local Chinese brand. Um, because of the way the name was translated. And I've had a number of conversations, um, e- even very recently, about some of the, um, we call them parasite brands, the counterfeit brands that are out there, and about what they do for the brand or they don't do for the brands, I should say. And what we found in the, about 2008, some of the Chinese brands, they had more English in their stores and on their facades than we did. Um, They were able to adapt their logos and the way they presented themselves, let's say, very closely to some of the big global international brands. I don't want to say they were copying, but it was very close. Whereas what we were trying to do was localize, localize ourselves far too much. So we had no English in our stores. There was nothing told about our story. So you know, as, as the innovator of the sports footwear industry, which is what New Balance is, we're trying to sell made-in-UK shoes for 2,000 renminbi. And we're finding around the corner a Chinese brand, pretty big Chinese brand, is selling a shoe that, let's say, is modeled on our shoe. But they're selling it for, for um, 300 renminbi. Um, and we can't sell our products. We can't get our brand in the right place. And that's all because people didn't know who we were or what we stood for. So 2008, um, we turned around and I I just sort of said, you know, Confucius said, consider the past and you'll see the future or you'll understand the future. So my job was to turn around and sort of say, you know, New Balance was founded by a British guy, like all great things are founded by British people. And um, he noticed how chickens walked with perfect balance on their three toes. So he developed an arch support that then started the whole new balance, which comes from an arch support. Um, So it started a whole story. So I turned around and said, we need to tell that story. So we started, I'd literally go around with real chicken's feet in my pockets. But um, from that one store in Chen Men Avenue, just out off of Tiananmen Square, um, that that story, a very small store, 180 um, square meters, it generated um, 5 million US dollars worth of media and PR globally in four months, and we spent 150,000 on doing the whole thing. Um, so it, it blew up in a viral way. And the, the numbers, the commercial numbers, which I won't go into here, um, multiplied drastically over the following, you know, the following years. So storytelling, you know, it com- you know, converted into commercial reality.
0: And, and so what I really like about that story is that there's a creative proposition there. It's an idea. And the idea could have failed or it could have succeeded. But you need to keep coming up with those ideas. It's not because you went out and asked people did they needed a different story that talked about chicken's feet and arches. It was actually the creative team came up with it. And so a little bit of advice that I have for people who are working in in, in design studios, design departments is... Not everything is going to come out of A-B testing. Not everything is going to come out of market research. Sometimes you've got to go and just make an, an awesome proposition and you can have phenomenal results. One of the problems that I see is that people will turn around and that they'll actually just, they'll go with a single silver bullet shot. And I think probably when you went and did that, it was going to be one strategy to go deal with this rather than the only strategy that you had. It's fantastic that it yielded for you, but it's the idea that would have been part of a range of tools that you had. But you need to be bold sometimes and you need to surprise both yourself, your customers and the board by something that just translates and cuts through. Fantastic story. How about you, Hamaxi? What have you had that's actually surprised you in how it's helped the organization get some results?
1: So I guess things, uh, timing is still a bit fresh for us right now at Zeek Asia. I feel like saying ask me this question in 10 months and hopefully I'm going to have a couple of really good success stories to share uh, because we're sort of uh, we've been very much in discover mode we've been building a lot of information foresight ideas and I feel like I hope we're on the pre- precipice of now starting to actually make effect so can and, I, and change with I can. I'm going to
0: help you out here because you're being such a good corporate player there but I think seek Asia put you in the role because you'd done some amazing things before you got to Seek.
1: So I, I don't know what you're thinking of, but I was going to actually share one example, which I, I won't share the company, but in a past uh, in-house product company, uh, essentially, and this is going back about 10 years now, so we were, we were asked to, to execute a pilot. Uh, the company was quite risk-averse, I would say. It was a very uh, financially heavy uh, product model, very tiered, very structured, very bureaucratic
0: company. Can we just test the temperature here? Who works for one of those companies that's uh, maybe a little bit uh, constrained on being adventurous? A show of hands from the audience. Oh, gosh. They're not a highly interactive wow, audience, are they? So you're all working for agile, really progressive organisations that let you do whatever you want to do at any stage. So let's test the temperature of the audience here. So who's working for an organisation that actually might be a little bit conservative, maybe not letting you do everything that you want to go do? Remember, it's audio. There's, nobody can see if your hands going up. Okay, so that was a much better response, an honest response. There, I even work for one of those organisations here, and I own the thing. So you know, I know that we do conservative things, and my and my team go, "Why the hell are you doing that?" So I don't know why, but it just feels like the right thing. And I know I'm probably doing things in my own worst interest, but at the other times I go do very courageous and bold things, which are in my own best interest. So organisations right across the world are going to have those challenges there. So let's go back to your story, Hamaxi. We're we're in an organisation which has a tiered product arrangement. It's actually a little bit frightened to go take a courageous step. And then you've popped into the room and you've done what? Uh,
1: So we had a team. We actually did a pilot. um, And the pilot was a controlled pilot, uh, fixed amount of time, geographically constrained, uh, all that sort of stuff. But to be able to execute this pilot, we actually had to rebrand. We had to go forward with the vanilla brand because the brand we were working with had, as, organi- as organizations like this do, the brand carried a lot of baggage with it as well. So to go in with a completely different product model that shook up Everything, the experience, the finance, the tier, the the risk, all those sorts of things naturally was going to have impact both within the organization, but also with the customers that we were trialing it with. So we went and we did this pilot. It was across about three months. Uh, Like I said, it flipped the product model completely on its head. It went from a completely business-driven product model into a completely user-driven product model because that's the competitive space we were playing in. We either needed to adapt or... We were gonna die um so we did that we ran it we iterated it was a lovely project to be a part of Uh, and i think it was something like three months later or four months it was so successful it was actually ranking higher in seo than the core product and the core brand so i guess that was the wonderful part of this project and then the bad part of a corporate bureaucratic risk averse company is that they actually came back and asked us to, to take it out of SEO and they shut down the pilot because it was ranking higher than the core product. But that was just simply, like I said, it was 10 years ago. It's just an indication that the business was simply not ready for that. They didn't know how to handle that.
0: So that's a, that's a great example there of a project which um, didn't have the emperor's ascent. Yeah, The emperor of the organisation is the CEO or the chair of the board... And this project obviously had some form of assent from somewhere in their management structure. But somebody else who had more power in the management structure turned around and gazumped the other person and said, you're not going to destroy my business and upset my numbers because what they weren't after was the outcome for the organisation. They were after somebody in the tiered management there. And so that's a really interesting project to go think about. It performed, it worked, it was successful but it didn't live the overall culture of the organisation, which was some people currently had power and they were going to use that power to go and actually kill anything that might have threatened them, regardless if it might have been in the worst interest of the organisation. So the project died. Is that what happened? It did. It just
1: got shut down, basically. Um, I, I think it comes down to, I mean, you touched on a good point there because it is about... Uh, I guess, braveness, is that a word, courage? So it is about courage. It is about thinking about the future and being willing to ride the dip that comes with that. But I mean, I do understand why I got shut down as much as I hated it because the business readiness wasn't there and the impact across the business, sales, customer care, go to market, all of those teams need to get ready for something like that. That's a very large scale undertaking.
0: And that's a very important thing, knowing that you might be able to do something where you move very quickly and that you come up with something that's very innovative and gets bite in the market. But if it's going to upset the whole organisation, the organisation may not be ready to go and actually seize that opportunity. So there there may have been some very good governance in, in that scenario. It was unfortunate for the project, but there may have been some good governance. There may have been some Machiavellian games. It's hard to know. And so thank you for sharing that. So, Andrew... We've spoken a bit about your signage and communication program, eh, about the works that you're doing. What other examples are there of projects that have absolutely rocked and have helped the organisation go achieve its goals? Well, I'm going to name name. This is my former employer,
3: Land Transport Authority in Singapore. We was doing a, a new line for Singapore called the Circle Line. We had two stations, one which was in a very significant location right downtown beside the uh, Singapore Art Museum, The other one was in a much more suburban location next to the National Stadium. We put forward a proposal to do a design competition for the two stations, something that had never been done before in Singapore. We actually run an international design competition to have the the design put forward. We run it in association with the Singapore Institute of Architects. And to cut a long story short, because running architectural competitions is a lot of work, a very small firm called Woha one, both of the stations. And at the time, I think people would may know the, know, know the name now, but at the time they were a small 12 person office. My CEO asked me, he said, are you sure, Andrew, that these guys can handle it? Because at the time they were a 12 person architectural practice and we'd normally deal with architects that were in the hundreds and two hundreds. I wrote into their contract that if I ever felt that they were falling behind, they had to team up with a much bigger firm. Um, and that was my risk management to, to that approach. I never got close to exercising that, and the two stations, if you've ever been to uh, Singapore Stadium and Brass Brasser, um, they won multiple design awards, both locally and internationally, and really broke the mold for what a good transit station meant. And of course, then the subsequent stations from that, the other designs were looking up to that and being inspired by it, even though they weren't being done by design competition.
0: I had no idea that you are involved in the acceleration of WoHa's practice there. For those of you that don't know WoHa, we'll put a link in with the podcast and the follow up. But as a practice, they're probably doing more that's working out how to have green buildings, sustainable buildings. They've built a whole range of sustainability metrics that talks about what is the percentage of uh, green space that's on the outside of the building rather than if it was just a plot of land somewhere. They talk about energy efficiency and everyone gets a start somewhere. And to hear that you might have been as part of that—that's fantastic. Because, you know, without that, small studios don't become big studios. So that's a very sensible layout.
3: Yeah, I could just tell the talent in uh, Richard and Munn some right from the outset, and uh, they never disappointed. You know, it was really nice time to be working with them because they were, the practice was just accelerating, and I was working with them individually on a one-on-one basis.
0: So what was really interesting there was the organization wanted what these people had. They worked out how to go put a risk strategy in place, which was, we like your ideas, but if you're failing behind, we're going to actually make sure that you then partner up with some people who've got some horsepower to go finish the project. The organisation was able to go get the win, the outcome that they were after, and they also managed their risk. And so that's a very interesting board-centred strategy there because you can go to the board and say it's innovative, it's going to make a difference, it's going to be astounding, and we've worked out how you don't look bad if this doesn't go right. So I think that ticks across all all of those areas there. So, Michael, I wanted to go and ask you then because IBM, about – three or four years ago, at a board level, understood that there was a threat because there wasn't enough design in the organisation. They onboarded 1,500 designers in less than 12 months, probably the biggest hire of designers anywhere in the industry. Went from being one of the smallest uh, employers of designers into one of the largest employers of designers. And that was done because the board and the CEO knew that the experience economy was marching well and truly at a, at, a, at a heavy pace and that they would probably be left behind if they didn't get there. So you're in the stages of building culture you're actually trying to work out how to change the direction that the ship's going. How do you think that's performing for you? Do you think that the organisation is beginning to get that that change is necessary or are they rejecting the fact that you're trying to go and actually get them to be more human-centered and more have more empathy for their customers?
4: I think as a whole, um, IBM has been really good with embracing design as part of the practice, part of our toolkit. Um, like I mentioned, there's a lot of resources that we develop our own practice, say enterprise design thinking and a lot of these other offering. But in terms of how those practice been trickling down from global to a local level, it takes a bit of time. And the funny thing is... Um, is design is actually part of our DNA. If you go, to, go down that hallway, there's a uh, quote on the wall. It says, good design is good business. So it was hidden in our history, but it's taking a bit of time to being embraced again. And now I think we are at the, if you talk about the envision scale, we probably at the second and third or closer moving into third.
0: And I think that's really important that uh, IBM's an example of an organisation that got uh, seduced by technology, but the organisation is about business machines. And if the new business machine is about the experience of the customer, maybe that's the systems and the machines that you need to be focusing on. So it's a, it's a very courageous thing to have a CEO that comes out and says, we're, we're deficient We need to employ lots of people. We need to work out how do we go bring in design thinking throughout the organisation. I know I I see Michael through social media forever going around and running um, uh, sprints, design sprint camps, competitions for people to begin to understand how to think in the minds of the end customer, not in the minds of the manager who actually commissioned the project. It takes a long time and it actually has to be something that organizations are brave with. And so I think as we go across our panel here, you know, we've got IBM who are out and proud of the fact that they're in transition. And I think that's a really important thing. Doesn't mean that they're not experts in the projects that they're working on, but they're trying to go and actually transform an entire organization. And if you go think of the things that you actually touch, which might have been a technology or a system that IBM had put together, It's going to be a better system in the future because it's actually coming from a design centered approach. We go look at the MTR, you're doing lots of work which is actually helping to have stories and conversations with your, with your customers to make sure that they understand what's going on. We look at New Balance, that New Balance is, uh, had to go work out how to tell a story which was actually that we have heritage which is English heritage and try to stop being so much of a chameleon and actually just become authentic to the brand and themselves and they got great results there. And if we go into the world that Asia Asia's in, Seeker's is trying to work out how to go take all of these different cultures and experiences, work out how to harvest the best out of them and bring them into amalgam, which actually becomes an even stronger entity there. So what I've been trying to go do is show that even the organisations who seem to be leaders aren't necessarily perfect. And if we were Olympic athletes, we'd all be trying to work out how to go do our personal best. But in business, you think you're number one and you're just going to stay there and you won't talk about the fact that there might be something that you need to improve. So having that idea that somebody else is also going to actually work out how to match your experience, match the design systems that you've put in place, is actually a great challenge for you to continue to improve rather than something just to turn around on the board and say, mission accomplished, because it's never accomplished. There's a great, uh, there's a great concept out in, the, out in the world that came from Patricia Seibold, I think it was in 99 or 98. It was in a book called customer.com and it's called The Satisfaction Equation. And if there's one thing I'd really like you to take away from, uh, from this talk is that you understand how the satisfaction equation works. And it is that to be satisfied, your experience has to be greater than your expectation. It's pretty simple. That's a great thing when you get something that's a rule of thumb. Now, the problem that happens there is that the MTR turns around and puts a notice in the escalator that tells me that they're repairing it. And next time I go up, I want a better story because my expectation was that you're telling me this all the time. I I want the next thing. I want the new thing. And that's where the real challenge comes in. It's not working out how to go on, say, the tennis tour and be one of the 200 players that's in a Grand Slam. It's working out how to win the Grand Slam that's important. And so I think for all of you as you're trying to work out how do you get that you've got design integral in your organisation, that's only the beginning of the game. From there on, it's working out how to continually do personal bests. And that's why you need to have tools that continually go back to the board and give them reference that there's a, there's a challenge out there. Somebody else is trying to go and take that mantle, that position that you've taken. And then working out how to have the dialogue with them so that you can work out how to be on that continual improvement, continual satisfaction that's out there. Ladies and gentlemen in the audience here, thank you for coming along this evening and uh, asking questions, listening to our panellists. Please thank our panellists with a huge round of applause. you've been listening to the design executive club podcast if you'd like to listen to other episodes please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast software make sure you like us make sure you share the news and uh, by being subscribed you'll find out when our next episode comes so thank you for listening and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon